Hey everyone, welcome to this week's episode of the Amateur Gourmet Podcast. I'm sorry for the delay between episodes. I've been kind of busy promoting the new book, Give My Swiss Arts to Broadway, which is available everywhere now. But we're not here to talk about my book today. We're here to talk about a brand new cookbook by the illustrious cookbook author and food writer, Ileana Masonette, whose brand new book is called Diasporican, and it's a gorgeous, gorgeous book, and I am so excited to talk to her about it. If you don't know Ileana, she is an IACP award winner. She's written for uh, Bon Appetit, Savoir, Food and Wine, Lucky Peach, Food 52, The Los Angeles Times, and she had a column in the San Francisco Chronicle. And today we talk all about Puerto Rican cooking and how she came about writing this book. So without further ado, here is my talk with Ileana Masonette. Well, Ileana, it's so nice to meet you and congratulations on your gorgeous, incredible new cookbook. How does it feel to have it out there in the world? Uh, I feel good. I'm excited. Congratulations to me. Yay. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I was just looking through it. I mean, it's gorgeous. And I feel like what's what's so special about it is it's obviously like a, an important subject and not a, not a, there's not a lot of Puerto Rican cookbooks out there, but more importantly, it's really unique. Like it doesn't look like any other book I've ever seen. So I'm curious about the process of how you put it together and, um, and what that was like for you. That's really interesting that you say that because I I personally felt like it looked like several other books that came out really? this year. The yes. cover, the cover of it. I feel like the cover image is gorgeous with the like... no, not the cover, but like a lot of like the props and the color, the color palette and stuff like that. Just because um, you know my stylist was uh, Jillian Knox, and she worked on um, Rima Sales cookbook, and she works a lot with um, Brian Terry. And so like her and I are um, like our styling, our prop styling is very similar because we both hoard a lot of vintage stuff, mm-hmm. like vintage, you know, tableware and flatware and cups and spoons that like we both kind of just really collect and hoard a lot of that stuff. So when I saw Reams cookbook, I'm like, oh, like the stylist, the stylization looks very similar. The color palette looks very similar, you know, huh. but the cover might look different. I feel like because like the whole like stacking thing was like very like trendy in blogs like around like 2018. Right, right. Like 2018, 2019, especially like when a lot of food people, like the foodie blogger people got on to Instagram and like the uh-huh. stacking thing was like, you know, the yeah. thing. But I think people forgot about it already. But I always knew that I wanted to do something that was going to stack sandwiches with this book, even though it was probably considered, you know, like the trend was over or whatever. But I mean, in terms of how you employ that trend, I mean, the, the imagery is so vivid. I mean, the black backdrop and then the, whose hands are those? Those are my mom's. Your mom's hands. And then like the, yeah. the nail polish, the jewelry. I right. Which is how she sauce. looks every day. That yeah. is how she dresses every single day. And then the octopus coming out. I mean, I just think it's one of the most striking covers of a cookbook I've seen in a very long time. So I think you should be very proud of how it came out. Um, but can you talk a little bit about the process of putting it together and how, how this all came about? Well, the cover is totally accidental, you know, like my mom was there, she was there on set with me every day, just kind of, um, she's like the overseer, you know, making sure that Jillian and Malia were like, you know, making the Puerto Rican recipes as, as well as they could for them being prop food. Cause you know, prop food doesn't always like 
the food that gets it doesn't always get finished it doesn't always look like how it's going to look when you make it because it has to look aesthetically pleasing and all that stuff you know so a lot of things aren't even like all the way cooked through but you know my mom was there that day and she had on um so it's not black she had like a like a dark maroon kind of blood colored velvet shirt it's just with the um, the color process through dan you know he just kind of worked around that and it made it look a lot darker all the jewelry is hers that's how she wears her jewelry the puerto rican bracelet is my grandma's that she wears pretty often she always paints her nails all the time like my followers will send her nail polish in the mail (laughs) and uh 10 speed already kind of had an idea of two recipes they wanted for the cover one of them was the um caraguisada and one of them was, um, I can't remember what the other one was, but they already had two ideas. So the one day Becky, who or Betsy, who was our, um, she's like the um, the book designer. She's the one that does all the layouts and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. The art director. She wasn't there that day. And we just kind of like, we just kind of ran amok, you know, we were doing all kinds of, sh- we were doing all kinds of stuff that day, like suspending pork chops from, you know, midair. And wow. I made, I made Jillian like, you know, create some kind of faux branch that took like an hour to make that we didn't even end up using. <laughs> and then um, I said, you know, let's, let's make the arepas, the cocoa, which is what those are. They're just, um, you know, like kind of like a, like a, fritter a bready fritter made with coconut milk Mm -hmm. and then traditionally the inside gets filled with like a um like an octopus salad like i put cucumbers in mine because it's it makes it a little more like adds like a fresh vegetable to it and i kind of like stole it from like mexican like agua chiles you know Uh and um we stacked all of them in my mom's hand jillian was like you know oh like we need more drips so she just came and like added more drips I was hell bit on having like the tentacles coming out of the yes. you know, arepas and you know, Dan, he, we took the shot or whatever. And I just remember me and Dan, he printed out all the photos and then like, you know, for this section and this section on the walls. And then we had the section where the two cover shots were going to be. And, you know, I remember he like put a, the photo of like a seafood section and then we were just kind of like staring at it. And then he just like picked it up. And then he just walked over to the cover section and he put it with the other two photos. And we just looked at each other. We're like, that's the fucking cover. Yeah. We know that's the cover. Now we just have to convince 10 speed that that was the cover. And luckily it didn't take much convincing. I love that. And I think it's so cool. And what about the title? When did you come up with the title? Well, seriously, last minute. Like when Lorena asked me what the title of the book is, I just shouted out Diaspora. Because I had other names that I wanted for the book. Like one of them was like, you know, like Spanglish because it was kind of like, um, you know, because of the whole diasporican thing. But also, you know, that whole ish thing was kind of like still kind of Mm -hmm. popular, like Priya's Indian-ish, you know, stuff like that. And then I thought that maybe it would be pastillas and ketchup. (laughs) Right. Which is another which is another kind of like culmination of like two worlds colliding, you know. That's your next book. Hold on one second. Winston, shut up. <laughs> Winston, Winston, we're doing a podcast. Winston. That's not his job to care. I know. He's like busy keeping on guard. Sorry about that. Um, 
Well, okay. So let's rewind the tape a little bit. I mean, I, I've been following you for a long time, but for those who are listening just on the off chance that they don't know a lot about your career and how this all started, can you tell us a little bit about how you got into food writing? Um, I think, so my first professional writing gig was, I would, oh, I was always writing already, but I never showed anything to anybody. And then I was already doing some writing, um, like in 2012. So in 2009, I went to culinary school. In 2011 or 12, I got a job um, here in San Francisco with a company called Broke Ass Stewart, which is owned by a dude named Stewart Shuffman, who ran for mayor in like 2015. So, wow, okay. I had no idea. (laughs) <laughs> I started writing for them as a food truck correspondent because that's when the food truck boom was going on, you know, and off mm-hmm. the grid had started and all these other things. And um, that's how I started with professional getting paid for food writing. Um, and then later on, I got promoted with them and was on the editorial side, which didn't leave me much room for writing at all, you know. Mm-hmm. And, and then I kind of became like a on like editorial marketing advertising it was super crazy so anyways um like in 2015 i think is when i met rachel kong who had who came goodbye vitamin i think yeah yeah, she's a novelist and she was at lucky beach right exactly she somehow or another came across me i feel like it might have been through a writing group that i was in that kind of like um gave a lot of resources to um like marginalized writers like women Mm -hmm. people of color stuff like that and she was doing a mother's day specific um issue Mm -hmm. and so she asked me if i would write something and that was the first time that i had written about my mom and her um her mushroom chicken recipe yeah and that that was really good first professional writing gig i got and lucky peach at the time was like you know, like that was what every kind of counterculture food person was reading, you know? Mm -hmm. So we were like totally obsessed with that shit. And I'm like, I just barely started writing professionally. One of my first writing gigs was Lucky Peach. And I just kind of knew that food writing was going to be my thing because it, it was one of the few times in my life where I didn't have to like, overcome a shit ton of obstacles to mm-hmm. make it happen yeah that makes a lot of sense it's like you know when the green lights appear you follow them or it's exactly right? life is telling but uh, just to rewind the tape even a little earlier than that i mean i'm actually curious to hear about and you write a lot about this in the book so i apologize that it's already in there for people who buy the book but like in terms of growing up and your relationship to food and cooking and your childhood i mean did you you grew up in california right yeah northern california in Northern California. And so you, you write in the book about your grandmother and you write about your mother, but can you talk a little bit about the, the food culture that you grew up in, in your house and how that led you to want to pursue food as a career? I mean, those two, I don't think those two are connected. Really? Or if they are, I don't think that I really connected the dots until um, 2014 mm-hmm. when I was already in food. Right, like when right. I was in culinary school, I had no idea that I would be writing about or cooking Puerto Rican food as a profession. Got it. So culinary school was was just to get a degree and like learn the classic techniques of, you know, uh, French, like the French system. Is that sort of what you were studying? Well, honestly, it was a fallback because before 20, 2008, I was a, a 
professional visual artist. Oh, I think I knew and, that. Okay, yeah. And that's how I made my living. But then when the housing and the financial crisis took hold, nobody was buying art. It right. was like, nobody has money for that type of thing, you know? And so I left for like maybe like a while, maybe like a year to reset. And then somebody mentioned, one of my friends mentioned, you should go to culinary school because you love to cook. And I'm like, I didn't even consider that. Okay. And then I went and it was like, oh, this is like, this is a cakewalk. This is easy. Ah. And it's something that I like, you know, like I'm not, because I don't like school. I love learning, but I don't really like school because of the way that a lot of people teach, you know, but culinary school is kind of like all your senses are kind of working at the same thing. And that's how I learned best. That's how I process the best, you know? Mm -hmm. So yeah, I don't, I definitely didn't go into culinary school thinking that, yeah, I'm going to be a food writer and I'm going to write a cook about Puerto Rican food. Those two are not connected. Where did you go to culinary school? At American River College in Sacramento. And their one and only like famous alumni is like Guy Fieri. <laughs> uh, <laughs> okay. Uh, so did you, um, how did going to culinary school change the way that you cooked Puerto Rican food or did it change it at all? I was not cooking Puerto Rican food at all. No, I know, that. but I meant like later, like when you started doing the cookbook and stuff like that, like when you went back to Puerto Rican food, were you, did you use the things that you learned in culinary school or did, was it separate? Yes and no. So when I went to culinary school, I was like, there's no way that I, because, you know, they make you do internships, stages, whatever you want to call them. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they have an on-campus restaurant that's open to the public. And that's like your keystone class. You have to work front of the house and back of the house at this restaurant, you know, with like with real deadlines, real timelines, real yeah. on the all types of real shit. I'm like, there's no way that I'm going to be doing this when I'm 50 years old. <laughs> doing this every day with like no, you know, no benefits, no, no net. There's that's not I'm not going to be a lifer. I just can't do that. Culinary school, then I decided food writing. So that's when I started um, doing like an emphasis on creative writing. Yes. So so in culinary school, I decided I'm going to be a food writer. But I was already in it and decided there's no way I can be a lifer. We got to switch it up. Okay, writing. What are we going to write about? We don't really know. Okay. So in, I was already finished in 2014. So in, 20, in 2009, somebody said, you should go to culinary school. I said, that's, good. that's a good idea. And I went to culinary school. <laughs> In 2014, my brother-in-law said, you should do a cookbook. And I said, oh, that's a good idea. And then that's how it started. It literally just started like that. Got it. Like okay. my, my life is seriously just, I, I am a person that slips through the cracks during transitional phases. Got it. It's all, it's all <laughs> luck. So my brother-in-law said, let's do a cookbook. You should do a cookbook. And I said, oh, that's a good idea. What should we do? I said, you know what? My grandma is already like, she was already like 76. I said, let me like, and I don't know any of her recipes. I don't know the measurements or anything like that. In culinary school, I learned the importance of measurements, which mm. she does not, she didn't measure. So I said, I'm going to watch her because I kept trying to make her recipes and they just were not coming out like her. I'm like, something is missing. Like there's like a disconnect, you know? So I had to like literally be in the kitchen with her and watch her. And it helped me understand that a lot of it was just getting lost in translation because she mm. just didn't know how to explain those things in Spanish or English, you know, culinary school kind of teaches you the vernacular. Right. You know what I mean? And it teaches you certain techniques as well. So I, all the recipes that I watched her make and I finally wrote down was the, all went into the first little cookbooklet that me and my brother-in-law made together. It was like a 10 page, 10 recipe cookbooklet. Mm -hmm. And then I was going to use that little book 
and submit it in with like proposals to get an agent to help me get a bigger book. Right. But it didn't happen that way. Nobody was interested because nobody knew how to market a Puerto Rican cookbook. But my grandma did get to see the final cookbook, which me and my brother-in-law, we went to Puerto Rico and we did a ton of research and we traipsed all over the island and all that stuff. She did get to see it because I showed it to her on her, what would become her deathbed. Mm. And she was like, mm. But that's just her response anyway, which means <laughs> I, it doesn't mean it's good or bad. It just means I acknowledge it. Right, <laughs> and right. There's, and there, I know that, you know, it's not going to be as good as mine. That's and then so interesting. Maybe, so, like, so you were able to use your skills to like translate. It sounds like it was like a translation thing about translating your grandmother's Totally. Recipe. So when yeah. she would say, oh, you need this many, you know, this much rice and this much water. The thing is, though. What she really means is li- liquid because sofrito is a liquid. The tomato yeah. sauce is a liquid. The water is a liquid. And sometimes she would also add olive brine, which is a liquid. So all of those things need to be accounted for the amount of liquid that goes mm-hmm. into the rice. You know what I'm saying? And that was the one thing that had been tripping me up for years. I was making my rice mushy, 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 mushy. <laughs> also, the type of pot. Like most people will try to make their rice in like a Le Creuset Dutch oven. Yeah. For, for the type of Puerto Rican rice that you want to make where it gets that crusty bottom, you need to have kind of like a wide and thin pot that conducts heat evenly. Crusty bottoms are very in right now with rice. I mean, everyone's exactly. Ta- ta- uh, well, yeah. <laughs> so it sounds, I mean, I'm not, I think it's a good transition into just Puerto Rican cooking in general. I mean, I, I'm fascinated by this book in terms of like the scope of it and, and just the the level of detail and and just how much I don't know about Puerto Rican food I mean um I mean so many of these dishes look delicious but I don't think I've ever had them before so can you talk a little bit about mm. your um process in terms of how did you narrow this down how did you organize it how did you you know what was your way of thinking about it when you when you laid this all out into a book oh I don't even <laughs> remember you know, like I, Lorena helped me a lot in terms of um, Lorena being the senior vice president, the former senior vice president of TenSpeed, but she was also my editor. Um, you know, laid things out. You know, when it comes to like the table of contents. You know what right. I'm saying? Because I didn't have them listed as like chicken, beef, or pork. I had them listed as like you know appetizers, entrees, sides, that type of stuff. Mm-hmm. So she really helped me to like extend that. And then it was kind of like one of those word jumbles where you just kind of put the words under the categories that she already had. Like, oh, this would go good here. This would go good there. And a lot of the recipes, I knew that I wanted word. You know, recipes that my grandma made consistently, things that she had made that she didn't make any more, like the lechon, like the whole roasted pig was something they used to do when I was younger. Mm-hmm. But, you know, as everybody got older, they just couldn't really physically do it anymore. And nobody in my generation, like my cousins, were interested in that. They were interested in eating the food, but they were <laughs> not interested in learning how to make it. Got it. Um, you know what I'm saying? I'm looking at Nina Didi's beans. And that, that's like a recipe where I'm so excited to make it because I, I make a lot of dried beans, but I love that you stir in two cups of cheese into like the bean is it like into the liquid sort of or, or into the yeah right at the end that's what she does yeah i like love right, that right 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 at the end it looks but so I didn't good know that, though until i saw her and i'm like what are you doing and i'm like she's adding <laughs> fucking cheese to the beans i'm like okay i'd have never ever thought of that 
So when you were in, so you tested this book in, um, in California, right? And most of the recipes, did you do most of the cooking at home? And then did you travel to Puerto Rico to do research or how did it all work in terms of like, that's basically I, how it went. Yeah. Yeah. But was it hard to recreate things in, I mean, were there certain ingredients or certain, you know, recipes that didn't come out the same in California that taste differently in Puerto Rico? All the recipes that are in there. Okay. All the res all the res all the Puerto Rican recipes that are in the book were already recipes that we that my grandma had that we had here. Okay, got it. So you grew up eating that here, yeah. Yes. So they are already kind of um, have they have already evolved from being in in Puerto Rico. And the good news about California is, other than like recao, which is culantro, everything else can be found here. What is culantro? It's it grows wild, like literally, like sometimes in like the cracks of the sidewalk in Puerto uh -huh. Rico, and it you can, it can be found a lot at the Southeast Asian markets, especially that kind of like um, target the Vietnamese community, mm -hmm. and they call it sawtooth coriander. It's just a long it's a long leaf, and it is like it t it has a similar flavor of cilantro but it's a lot more pungent it's way mm. more strong you need a lot less of it okay. and i think that's also because like cilantro has had a lot of time to be to have been um how do you say it kind of like um manipulated mm -hmm. by you know farming techniques or whatever you know sure. Where nobody really knows anything about it now so it the way that it exists now is how it has always existed Got it. Um, well, I'm looking at your Puerto Rican flavor lexicon, and I'm curious if we can go through it because I, f I feel like a lot of these things, I mean, I'm just curious, for example, the first thing you have in there, and you're going to yell at me when I pronounce some of these words, so please correct me. Yeah. Ach <laughs> achiote oil? Uh, achote. Right? Achote. So, okay, I've, I've actually made some stuff with that, but can you tell us, for those who've never cooked with it, what it is and why you use it and how it um, enhances your food? Uh, achote is a seed. It grows, uh, uh, several seeds grow in a pod. The pod almost looks like a, I don't know if, well, now I'm like, I don't even know if people know what an almond pod looks like. And, you know, it has like this kind of hard, papery exterior and it has like spikes on the outside. And when the seeds are ready, the pod will open up. Okay. And the seeds will be inside. And then the, that's how they harvest the seeds from the tree. So, and then you, the seeds, Either you can like ground them up, you know, and then that's how it makes the achote powder, or sometimes mm -hmm. they grind it super fine and it makes the achote paste. Okay. But for the most part, Puerto Ricans just use the seeds and put cook it in oil so it tints the color of the oil. But it also gives a flavor too, but it's like kind of like a I have not found another way to describe it as it's like a musty scent. Mm. It's very kind of uh, like a floral perfume. Got it. The smell is really strong and the flavor is just, it kind of just, the flavor is not as strong as the smell, but it just gives it kind of like this musty type of flavor. And Puerto Ricans use it to literally color everything. Like they use achote to, achote, ground achote is in sazon. One of the okay. main ingredients is sazon, which is what they use to, make the rice and you use achote to make in pasteles you use achote to make in acapulia like 
It's literally everywhere. It's what gives Puerto Rican that kind of orange hue. I love that. And it, and it's and it's sort of like almost like the ingredient that just makes it Puerto Rican food in a way. Like it's sort of right. That's it's an, it's connected to the place in and of itself. So that's kind of cool. Right. And and I've always been interested to know if you know, achote is a really old ingredient, right? And mm-hmm. a lot of South Americans and Mexicans they use achote, you know. But I was always trying to it's always interesting for me if and in, in the original inhabitants of Puerto Rico were trying to mimic the palm oil that the Africans mm-hmm. use or the saffron oil that the Spaniards use, mm. because both of those things have been in Puerto Rico. That's interesting. Yeah, that's part of your book, too, is sort of about the history of Puerto Rico and the various cultures. And, and I like that you sort of say that, like, there's not one definitive version of Puerto Rican food. There's a million different versions of it. So... Yes, it's just like Puerto Ricans themselves. When you ask right. Puerto Ricans what they are, they they will never kind of they never se- they always say Spaniard or European. I mean, they say Spaniard, Spaniard, African, and Taino. Mm. Because to every Puerto Rican, that is exactly what we are. We're all fucking three. We're not one or the other. Got it, and and that's reflected in the food. I mean, that's not, even the way you were just talking about that. You know, the exactly. Oil. Um, okay, well, I hope you don't mind that I'm going through these the Puerto Rican flavor lexicon, because I think this is a good way to get into your book a little bit too. Um, okay. But the next ingredient is, and again, I'm going to pronounce this wrong. Alca, <laughs> Alca Parado. Is that right? Yes. Uh, close, close enough. Okay. And what's that? <laughs> <laughs> okay. But what does it say though? Well, I mean, I'm trying to, I'm trying to talk to you and read it at the same time, but for okay. So it says keepers. I, I mean, I, my vision's not that good, but I, I also for people who are listening, um, can you just tell us a little bit about it? So, okay. So, acabado is like a mixture of like olives, capers, and like roasted pimentos. Okay. And I'm not, I think pimentos are just like red bell pepper, I think. Right, right. Yeah, like inside an I, olive. Right. I'm not entirely sure, but I think that's what it is. And but it's the same pimento that is used in um in like pimento cheese. Uh-huh. Okay. Right. But I remember my grandma using the mixture a lot more um when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. I don't really see too many people using it. And I don't know if it's difficult to find, but I don't really see too many people using it these days. And sometimes she would um add the mixture to her sofrito like when she would blend everything together she would sometimes put that mixture blend it down with the sofrito got it and i think sofrito i mean in terms of a concept that runs through your whole book and that seems to like embody what the book is about it feels like sofrito is like a core concept for a lot of the food in here yeah sofrito is basically the soul of savory puerto rican cooking and it's interesting because when I learned a little bit about Italian food, they have their own version of sofrito. I mean, it's called sofrito in Italian too, but I guess it's a diff- totally different Is it thing. their version though? Because it's the same thing as mirepoix, isn't it? Yeah, no, it is. It okay. is mirepoix. So it's yeah. not really their version. It's mirepoix. It's like, it's, yeah, okay. <laughs> wow, you're just angering yeah, a okay. lot of Italians <laughs> right now. Um, okay, but the Puerto Rican sofrito, can you, can you explain a little bit about what makes it unique and how you use it in, in your cooking? everyone has there's some some things that everybody puts in that should go in there but for the most part everybody has their own recipe right and i've learned 
some really interesting variations from doing research for this book. So for the most part, it is traditionally ajidulces, which are like a little sweet pepper. They look like habaneros, but they're sweet. Okay. Which are impossible to find here. Yeah, I've never seen that. That sounds good. Impossible. And then culantro, uh, onions, garlic. I think that's just the that's the base. Okay. From there, you can add now because culantro was so hard to find. Now cilantro is very common, mm-hmm. right? Because it's so hard to find in the states. Also, now the, the controversial ingredient is the tomato. Okay. Now, some people would say if you don't add tomato, then it's technically not sofrito, but instead recaito, because you've only added the culantro. Now, okay. a lot of people don't know that, but <laughs> whatever. You yes. add the tomato, which I do because I like the flavor that it lends, especially when you cook it down, it kind of adds like the sweetness that I like. Mm-hmm. That's sofrito. Now, some people, like I said, depending on my grandma's mood, sometimes she would add olives, sometimes she would add capers, and it would be blended through. And you would never know that except for like the brininess in the sofrito, right? Got it. Now, I also have heard that some people, this one woman in particular, also add um she blends in ham whoa okay i can see that sort of almost like like in again italian is my reference point but like like prosciutto (laughs) or like um like putting like uh yeah like a cured meat in there to give it another flavor now some people would be like totally scandalized by that but when you look at the way that a lot of puerto ricans cook some when they are adding their sazon they'll also add a packet of like it's almost like ham flavored bouillon Ooh, okay. So really, there is no difference between adding the ham to your sofrito and that packet, except that that packet is fake. Got it. So it's it's more ham flavored. Version. Yeah. Exactly. And so when, when you, you yeah. explain it like that, people are like, I'm like, yeah, you're going to die on this hill, whether you know <laughs> that you're right or wrong. <laughs> <laughs> and when you, so you make, you make a lot of sofrito, right? And you just have it. And then like, what, any, any recipe makes a lot. It's, right. It's hard to make a small amount. And do you freeze it? I think you say it in the book, right? Like you, you save like little yeah. pods of it. And then you throw it into like what? Like rice? You put it in soup? You put it in like almost everything? I put it in everything. Some people don't um, freeze it. You know, like I think like the the whole concept of freezing is a fairly new one because, you know, think about how long sofrito has been around as opposed to refrigeration in Puerto Rico, you know? Mm-hmm. So a lot of people still will just refrigerate it, but it's, you know, it's, it's fresh herbs, so it'll go bad quickly, you know. If you can get ahead of yourself and you can freeze it, which I do in an ice cube tray, right, then it's awesome. already it's already portioned out and it's already it can keep for like you know six months to like eight months, you know what I mean? Yeah. Got it. Well, are so are there certain recipes in this book that you're most proud of or you're most that you want people to make first or like the ones that you're most enthusiastic about? I mean, all... I'm proud of all of them. And I know that people are not going to want to hear this, but the, my favorite recipe in there is my mom's mushroom chicken because yeah. that's my de- that's my death row meal. I saw that and I was like, you can just kind of feel your love for your mother and your love for that dish, like spilling through the page. Like it just comes through um, that, you know, I, I could, there was just something about it. Where I was like, well, that's the one that I have to make first because yeah. it's clearly yep. important to her. Um, yeah, and people are like, that's not even a Puerto Rican recipe. I'm like, no, it's not. But it's one of the few recipes that my mom still remembers from my childhood it's one of the few recipes that 
she'll still cook because my mom does not really cook and she doesn't like to cook, you know? Mm -hmm. So it's almost like, it's almost like a celebratory meal. And for those who are not looking at the book as I am right now, it looks sort of like crispy. Is it like crispy chicken wings? Would you say? Because he says it in the- Yeah, she fries them first. Fried chicken wings, but then sort of like in a creamy sauce. And Right, which in the South would just be called smothered. Smothered, right. But it has a unique look to it. I think the wings- make it look unique and then the, the mushrooms in there just something about it just looks like I've never seen that before but at the same time it looks so comforting and cozy um, well because it's an old recipe she got it on the back of a Campbell soup can like really? in the 70s yeah That's so funny so is your mom happy with how the book came out she is I mean she knows that you know a lot I think she was like disappointed you know when a lot of the food during the process like you know for props and stuff wasn't like cooked all the way and she's like you know to her it's like why aren't you guys cooking like this that's wasteful like you know a lot of that so when we did her uh her her mushroom chicken she's like that's not what it looks like you know when i serve it to you i'm like yeah i know but when you serve it to me it just looks like a white blob on top of white rice you know what i mean like, we have to, like right you gotta judge it up yeah yeah we have to you know kind of just you know make it happen i'm kind of I don't know, like enliven it a little bit, you know? So once you like describe it to her, explain it to her, then she kind of gets it, yeah. But my mom was just not, to her, it's almost like being deceptive, Mm. you know, because she wants you to know what you're getting. Like, this is what it's going to look like. This is how I serve it. This is how it's going to look like. And to her, having that be like the real representation as opposed to something that is just pretty is Mm -hmm. being deceptive to her. I felt that way. I mean, when I did my cookbook, my first book was like, I cooked with a bunch of chefs and they taught me how to make different recipes. And then when we styled, like when I had to adapt the recipes and we went into like the actual photo shoot for the images, I I remember being like, that's not how the chef cooked it. Like, that's not what we did. And they're like, don't worry about it. This is just what it looks like, you know? Right, exactly. Yeah, Yeah, like even my carne guisada, like my carne guisada does not look like how it looks in the book. Got it. Right. But in order for like people to see the ingredients that are in it, it's like it had to be like, you know, the chunks had to be bigger. They had to be less liquid. You know what I mean? Because you want to look at it and be like, yeah, those things are in it, I guess. So I was just like, (laughs) (laughs) well, so as a follower of yours and a fan of yours, I feel like I'd be remiss not to talk a little bit about some of your struggles that you went through, like with this book, because you, you you're very open about that, that like when you have this proposal that it took a while for you to for it to catch on and and can you talk a little bit about that experience of having a proposal and wanting to sell the book and then the frustrations that you had in terms of getting it out there and then how you finally got it through well you know i'm not gonna lie at first you know when i started to push it out in like 2014 or 15 you know all i had was like that little booklet that looks very similar to the book diasporican because you know it was my brother-in-law was a photographer of that he's a photographer of this book so oh, it, it looks okay. it looks very similar you know and um you know i kind of had like this half-assed proposal because i was putting too much weight on the book being you know like here's what the book would look like i mean how much more do you people need so then <laughs> i mean that's that's how i kind of started and i was like getting rejections i said okay let me go back to square one and let me create like a more formal cookbook proposal you know and so, you know, there, to me, in my opinion, there are no rules to the game. 
And if there are rules, nobody seems to know them. The goalposts are constantly changing. And it really kind of depends on the person you're talking to. Mm -hmm. It's very subversive. Everybody has their own way of doing things. Everybody has their own different answers. So that's just in my personal opinion. So there is not really a way that anybody can teach you to write a proposal. Because every publishing house kind of has like a different way that they want the proposals to be written. Mm-hmm. So when I got my column at the Chronicle in 2017, the first thing that my former editor, Paolo Lucchesi, gave me was a 10-speed style sheet. Okay. And I was like, well, because he knew that, he knew about the book. Everybody did at this point. I mean, everybody in the industry, everybody in the industry had seen this damn book by now. <laughs> 10Speed was always my first choice because they were local. Got and 10Speed already had like a, such a long history of all these books that I already owned and loved, you know, and, and looked at and fingered through and everything. They were always my first choice, but I never pitched to them because I just, I didn't want, I wanted to exhaust all the resources before I even attempted to go to them, you know? Yeah. So when I, when I thought that I was doing like a formal proposal, I can only go based off of like, you know, what other people have or what the internet teaches you or what those Mm -hmm. classes that charge $300 teach you, you know, and then they send you away with like, you know, no real resources or anything like that. And you're just kind of walking away like, okay, I really didn't learn shit from that class. Okay. (laughs) And then I was submitting and still people were like, you know, like close, but no cigar. Really? Okay. Yeah. And still we don't know how to market it. Hmm. There's no comps. We don't know where to put this in, you know, this and that, whatever. And so like around like 2019, 2018, 2019, I had, so now so many people would knew about it. I'm pretty sure this is around the time that Jose Andres had already kind of, um, he was pushing me super hard and he had That's became incredible. a mentor. How did right? you, conne- how did you connect with him? Through the internet. Like literally through the internet. Uh, this was because you have to remember, like he had done so much for Puerto Rico during Maria. Yeah. That and he had been there for so long. You know, he when he was there, he actually got really sick because mm. he was doing so much kind of like nonstop. He had to like finally go home, you know, to kind of reset and, and rest, you know what I mean? So he had already had such a love for Puerto Ricans from all the time that he had spent there. And I don't think that he really connected. I mean, he does so much work around the world. I don't really think that he connected with people more than he did in Puerto Rico. And I mean, that might be just because of like a language connector, you know, right. or the amount of time that he spent there on the ground, you know, but like, you know, now people were starting to introduce me and trying to connect me with their agents and there was one Puerto Rican agent who used to be like an editor and then she was an agent. And there are very few Puerto Rican agent editors in the publishing industry, of course. And everybody kept telling me to talk to this person, talk to this person. And even this person was like, you know, I would love to do a Puerto Rican cookbook, but in my heart of hearts, I would just know that the author wouldn't have the platform that it would need to make the book worth it. Wow, that's crazy. So those were the two things that I kept hearing. No market, no platform. Ugh, we need sad. we need a market you need the platform you're too you're too small you know twenty thousand or ten thousand considered a micro influencer you know we need and nobody was giving me numbers on what they considered like you know like a big platform because nobody technically fucking knows 
And it's insane too, because I mean, I'm not to like spread rumors, but I feel like I've heard gossip about people just buying followers and it's like, well, yes. if, you can, if you can buy followers, then can't you just buy yourself a cookbook in that way? I mean, it doesn't exactly. make any sense. Yeah. Right. And people, and I was asking like, you know, do you care? And I would ask, do you care if the followers, the platform and the followers are organic or not? No, they don't. <laughs> They That's don't crazy. give That's a insane. crap, you know? And I mean, we're talking about, and the thing is, it's, there's such like a, a disconnect too, because you'll see people with like a hundred thousand who have like a million followers on TikTok that are not verified on Instagram. But then you'll see people with 7,000 followers on Instagram who are fucking verified. And I had tried to get verified so many oh, yeah. times. I think I tried like four times and I kept getting rejected. The only time that I finally got verified is when 10 speed put in the request for me. Really? Oh, interesting. Yeah, because I, I got verified on Twitter through something like that. But then Instagram, forget about it. Like I've I've had no yeah. luck. So, and and, and so I just biz- got rejected by Twitter. Oh, you did? I mean, it's bizarre. Yeah. Like I don't even know what it means anymore. I, I don't even notice who's verified on Instagram, to be honest. Because there are no rules to the game. Nobody yeah. knows what's going on except for the people making the rules. That's why. And, you know, it's funny because it's like I just read a, a Broadway cookbook and I'm like, I'm ready to do my next one. And like, my agent's like, well, we have to see how it does. We have to see, you know, it's like, there's never, even when you're winning, you're not really winning. It's like, you, exactly, still have to, yep. you have to still have to push the rock up the hill. So what was, what was the transitional moment where it went from the frustration to actually getting the book deal? 2020. I don't know okay. if you remember 2020, but 2020 was a hellscape. Yes. Like it was, well, it I like, like everything. George Floyd. And is that what you're talking right. about? Right. So, I mean, we're talking like, pushback from our person who's leading the country black lives <laughs> matters is setting shit on fire george floyd gets murdered and now people and you know the thing with bon appetit and now yes. we're talking about the change of food media landscape like everything is kind of like people are causing hell basically yeah. because people have, have had enough you know and it's and weirdly enough it's all intertwined so now you know people who are either trying to save themselves before they get called out or people who are doing like performative act everybody's scrambling to find you know creators of color who they can kind of put on as the face of look what we did we're we're woke you know and i'm not saying that happened to me because i think that it also in addition to those people though i also think that because we were getting so much support in 2020 that the algorithm was kind of pushing us up more so Mm -hmm. those of us who had already been in the industry for so long and like i always say like if you stay ready you don't have to get ready i was already ready with everything i already had i didn't have the, the platform but i had almost everybody in the industry knew who the hell i was i already had the proposal damn near ready i mean and even some minor tweaks but it was already ready i had already been a columnist i had already won an isap award i already had like you know i already had everything yeah the only thing that i didn't have was just somebody who would take the risk in me because of the color of my skin in my opinion well i think that makes a lot of sense and it's sort of as horrible as 2020 was it it shifted things in a really good way i think i mean obviously now the game has changed to use you know your metaphor of the game like things are different now i think that there's more more dynamic voices being launched and you know it's not the same exact same people over and over again getting their platforms i don't think but do you feel like it's shifted for other people too it shifted whether or not that will sustain is another story right that's a good point 
Um, so are you like raring to go with the next one or are you kind of like just enjoying doing a victory lap of on this one? Well, you know, Morena, when she, she, when she reached out to me in 2020 and she was like, you know, she goes, what's funny is that I remember seeing that little cookbook of yours years ago, mm-hmm. but you know, it's, it's something to do with the acquisitions editor, which to me, I, those people are like the worst anyways. Um, <laughs> Let's hope they're not listening said, to this. <laughs> <laughs> that it was just sitting on somebody's you know desk and she remembers seeing it, but you know, she didn't really know too much about it, you know? So when she reached out to me, I felt like Lorena really not only listened to me, but I felt like she really advocated for me. Like she made sure that I got everything that I wanted, even mm-hmm. when I didn't know that it was something that I wanted. You know what I mean? Like she made sure that I didn't have to do too much compromising in my proposal in the sense of um, italicizing words that might be seen as other. Like I was mm-hmm. like, I said that I did not want to italicize any words that were Spanish and I didn't want to, um, you know, parentheses quote, you know, um, define what this meant. Cause that's the way that I speak is in and out of Spanish and English all the time anyway, you know? Mm-hmm. So if I'm talking to you and I say, you know, I want you to take the papas and, cut and dice them up. I don't want to have to sit there and de- explain to you what papas are because this is how I talk. And she made sure that I didn't have to compromise that, which is, you would think that that's a small thing, but that was a huge thing because the other editors, the copywriters were like, no, we have to change that. We, right. have, to change. we have to italicize. And I'm like, no, we don't. And that's the subtext for that is that it's a white audience, right? Exactly. I mean, you're right. You know, for white and people, even yeah. and I, you know, I got this book deal without an agent. That's like, amazing. I tried to get it. That's a I huge tried deal. to get an agent. Even when I got the book deal, I tried to like hurry up and go back to the agents that I originally pitched and say, "Look, I got the deal. Now I just need you to help me, and I'll still give you a cut." And people still were not prepared to take that risk on me. That's crazy. So I had to negotiate the deal on my own. And when they gave me the number, Lorena, you know, allowed me to have that kind of voice where I felt, I mean, I always negotiate anyway, but there's always like a minor anxiety that comes with that. But I didn't feel that anxiety. Like I knew that I was comfortable enough to negotiate for more. Yeah. And it was, it was no issue. There wasn't like a, like, oh, well, we have to talk about it. It was like done. And is it, and are you happy with like how it's being promoted and how it's getting out there in the world? I mean, does it feel like it's been rewarding? Well, you know, the, the, the editorial side and the marketing and the publishing side are like two totally different worlds, sure. you know? Yeah. And Lorena is not there anymore. She's since resigned. And now there's a new senior vice president um, at 10 speed named Molly. And I haven't really got a chance to meet her yet. So, but you know, with most authors you know when they talk about platform is the reason why is because they basically want you to come in with your own number sales yeah yeah well yeah Yeah, you're you're coming in with your own contacts you're coming in like with your own sales team you're coming in with like your own customers you know all of that and i've been doing it for so long that by the time that i got the the book came out a lot of the people that i used to write with like Eric Kim and you yeah. know uh, Hawa, we all they everybody came up together. So I was you know doing the book, and everybody else was like you know at New York Times and at Bon Appetit, and mm-hmm. it was kind of like I was just cashing in those favors. You know what I mean? Like this net, let's do this. Can we do that? Can we do this? And all that stuff. Even Sola, like she's you know not at BA anymore, but you know she's got a her huge following followed her. 
You know what I mean? And I asked her, I said, you know, do you think, I said, do you think we can do something? And she was like, I would love to do that. I'm like, great. All right. Well, you got to do it. Yeah. I mean, that's the, that's the ugly part of all this is where you have to like, you have to, even if you hate self-promotion, you gotta, you gotta do it. But, um, before we end, we're almost out of time. This flew by. I have some <laughs> exciting news for you, which is that I'm going to a wedding in Puerto Rico in February and I'm very excited and I don't even know where to begin. So for those of us who are listening, who are going to Puerto Rico, it's not my first time. I actually went there on a food blogging trip like 10 years ago I got flown out what? there yeah with Matt Bites you know Matt Armanderas uh we flew out there with a group of food bloggers and, we, and it was That's really crazy. fun yeah but now I'm going back so you know do you have any I mean this is such a broad question so forgive me for how broad this is but if if you were talking to someone like me who's going to Puerto Rico and wanted to eat really well and experience like the best the island has to offer what would you say um, I would say go find a travel writer because that's not what I do. But <laughs> but I will but I will send you a list of places to go. Okay. <laughs> I mean, okay, maybe like okay, specific dishes that I should seek out that you know maybe would be good to eat there. Um, to tell you which dishes to seek out would also be able to tell you where to go though, because you okay. can have the same dishes in San Juan and they're absolutely horrible because some of them are geared towards tourists that are not going to be there very long you know got it so you have to know the place and then know the dish to get at the place okay exactly is there anyone that's like in your head right now though for those who aren't going to get your private email like that or listening? uh no because i'm not a travel writer so <laughs> okay like, <no> you don't <laughs> have all right all right well i figured i mean you are the author of diasporican but um okay well before we go did we cover all the stuff i mean is there anything else from the book that we should talk about that we haven't talked about yet i mean i'm looking at it again so many good recipes. I was looking at the desserts. I was looking at persimmon cookies. I'm very curious about that. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, my cousin came from Philadelphia and we were at a grocery store here and he saw a persimmon and he was like, what's that? And I was like, yeah. whoa, like there are very few times where I get like a culture shock moment like that. You yeah. know what I mean? I was like, what's a per what? And I'm like, <laughs> okay, like yeah. that's crazy. I'm like, because you're my grandma, which would be his his grandma and my grandma are sisters. So I guess that would okay. make him like his aunt, I guess. Yeah. Oh, yeah, maybe. I don't know. Like his great know. aunt. That would make him his great aunt. Got my it. grandma made, that's like one of her oldest recipes, those damn persimmon cookies. You know really? what I mean? Like, oh, that's so I remember cool. her making those when I was like a little, little kid. So there was not a time where I, you know, I mean, you're always around persimmons in Northern California, but there was not a time where I didn't eat persimmons too. And when I got and it's so crazy because he and yeah. I are the same age. He and I are the same age. We had like totally different experiences. And are the cookies, there's not a picture of the finished cookies, but are they sort of like, um, are they soft or are they crunchy? Or like, what's the like texture of the cookies? They're very chewy. Like they're, Chew. like the bottom is crispy and flat. And then it kind of becomes like this mountainous, blobby, you know, brown kind of mound with these little, the way my grandma made them with these little, kind of flex of the skin that turns she because she wouldn't she wouldn't just use the inside she would use the whole thing you know yeah. of the hachia ones they get real and mushy the, they get real chewy you know so the, it's like a chewy cakey soft cookie but the the part that is on the closest to the pan is crispy I'm going to make those first, I think. I think that's going to be my first <laughs> I have a sweet tooth. So what's the plan? Like, are, are, I know you're going to Omnivore Books today. 
Um, and so, and do you have any, any, I think you have a book tour planned, right? I do have a book tour. Um, I don't even remember the most of the dates though. I know <laughs> I'm going to do, um, on October 27th, I have a virtual class with Milk Street. That's so um, cool. With and those tickets Campbell. are for sale. Yep. And um, in November, November 3rd, I'm going to be doing the Sporkful in New York, the Sporkful Cherry Bomb podcast. And then uh, Eric that's Kim what, and Those I, are real podcasts. I mean, this is good practice because those are like real <laughs> really legitimate food podcast well i did i did the milk street podcast like a couple of months ago and it just came out yesterday got it it just came out yesterday yeah um and then eric kim and i are doing an event together um hosted by the museum food of um mofad museum of food and drink at the green space on november 4th okay and then um on november 5th with hopefully if we can get our schedules together i'm going to be doing some cooking with dan pelosi for his show the secret sauce love it that's great he was on this podcast so, yeah. he's really fun i know i love him so much so um and then november 20th i have something going on i'm doing the, <laughs> the common i'm doing the commonwealth club in december I'm doing oh a 92 Y class in December 21st. You're living it's the like dream. You're doing like I all mean, the I'm, best things. <laughs> I mean, I'm trying. I've been I've wanted it for so long. Yes. You know, and I know that the team would prefer me to say yes to absolutely everything, but it's it gets really overwhelming, you know, and I'm just like <laughs> Well, don't I know it feels that way, but enjoy it while it's happening because I I remember what that felt like when I mean I did when I did my first book. I don't really have a book tour for this current book that I did, but the last book I did. I mean, they sent me all over. I did like a dinner with Samin Nostrad in in San Francisco. Like it was all these amazing things, and then it ended, and I just was like, oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> back to life. So while it's happening, I I think you should try to enjoy it because it's really cool. Those are amazing um, venues that you're doing and and podcasts and stuff. So congratulations. Thank you. And this was so fun. And, and I'm sorry for those who don't know, I screwed up our initial, um, our interview time when we were supposed to talk earlier this week. And I thought, I thought that Ileana was in New York. So I was I like, thought that you were thing. in New York. Yes. Yeah, so I was on a three and she, it was not good, but it, we made it work. And this was such a delight. Yay. So if, you, if you're ever in LA, come look me up and we'll uh, make some persimmon cookies together. Oh, I'll be in LA November 20th and now serving. I will come and see if I'm not visiting my family for Thanksgiving. So I don't know when I'm leaving for that. But uh, thanks again for doing the podcast and congrats on an awesome book. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. All right. Good luck. I'll talk to you soon. All right. Bye. Bye.